This is the podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to the first episode of the Ask ST at NLB podcast series brought to you by the National Library Board. The monthly talks by The Straits Times correspondents were previously held at the Central Public Library, but due to COVID-19 safe distancing measures, we are converting the sessions into a podcast series done remotely. Listen to the correspondence you follow more intimately through our podcast. For this episode, The Straits Times foreign editor Jeremy Aoyong will host ST's China correspondent Elizabeth Law. Hello everyone and welcome to the Ask ST and NLP podcast. And I have with me today, well, not physically with me, but virtually, ST's China correspondent, Elizabeth Law. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, everyone. Hi, Elizabeth. Okay, well, today we are going to talk, well, I guess we've been talking about this for a long time, the coronavirus, especially your experience going to Wuhan in January before actually the world really even knew the scale of this pandemic. And then you went again after the lockdown was lifted about two months later. Mm. So we'll talk to you about your experience there and also what clues Wuhan or China can offer to the rest of the world that is trying to open up. But before that, for I guess for the benefit of our listeners, can you tell us where you are now and what are your surroundings? What do you see? Right. So right now I'm in our Beijing bureau, actually, sitting in our office, looking out of the window. It's a beautiful uh, summer day here, blue skies and all that, because we are preparing for the annual parliamentary meeting, which will start later this week. Things are almost back to normal here in Beijing. Earlier this month, they've lifted social distancing measures. Well, most of it they've lifted. So people are allowed to sit more than two at a table in restaurants. You are allowed to visit each other's homes where previously only residents were allowed into residential compounds. And I think most importantly is that you technically do not have to wear a mask anymore if you're outdoors, which I mean, this is something I feel for a lot of people in Singapore is something that you cannot imagine. But I assure you, things will get better. They can get better. And what we are seeing here really is the future for Singapore. So people no longer have to wear masks outside. Yes. That, that sounds quite unbelievable. Uh, yes. So when you look out your window, what do you see? Are, are people walking on the streets normally and are they keeping their distance from each other? Is this a pre-COVID back to normal or well, of I adjusted back to normal? Okay, uh, note that earlier when I said you technically are allowed to not wear a mask outdoors. But I think because of social pressure and because of what this entire city has been through, wearing a mask has just become such an imperative part of your daily lives that people just do it anyway. Maybe it is the social pressure, maybe. Maybe China has now really become a mask-wearing society because people just have much greater awareness of personal hygiene. But to go back to what you were saying, um, so is this to exactly pre-COVID? No, not really. I mean, other than the fact that people are wearing masks, they still are trying to keep a distance. I mean, when I first got to China, I, I'm quite sure we've talked about this before, and I said that, you know, I just could not get used to how much bodily contact there was. Like, I have felt more bodily contact in my first three months in China than I felt in my entire life anywhere else because <laughs> it's just people are crushed against you all the time, be it on a train, be it in a queue, be it in a restaurant when you're queuing for food, and all of a sudden you feel this thing stabbed into your back, you turn around, it's like a tray with their bowl of noodles on it and you're not just worried about the fact that someone is overly close but at the same time that a bowl of noodles might go down your back. Okay, so back to normal but somehow less dense. 
Yes, definitely. I mean, the people still do have an idea or this concept of social distancing is still very much in green. I think because not just the fact that the Chinese government did come down very hard with all sorts of fines and regulations, but also because there's just so much propaganda and so many reminders that are going on in the street that is something that is still deeply ingrained in the minds of people here. Okay, now before we talk more about Beijing, I think I will come back to that. Let's talk about Wuhan. Yeah, so you went to Wuhan in January and at that time, I guess nobody knew what this pandemic would turn out to be. No, I mean, at the time, this was early January, all we knew was that there was this mysterious pneumonia that was going on and I think if that sort of had SARS-like symptoms and of course the cases that we were being told about or that we were reading about all seemed fairly serious and I think you would quite clearly remember about how I was complaining about, oh my goodness, we don't even know how this spreads and, and of course clearly uh, we're all very concerned and then you said to go anyway and you were very kind to make sure that I was properly protected including getting the last of the disinfectant wipes in possibly all of Beijing that didn't matter that it came with Hello Kitty motives I mean that's clearly. a plus if anything <laughs> yeah and so I came back after that and the story that I wrote that weekend January 12 which you can still read it on the website which was about how people in Wuhan thought this was really just a seasonal flu uh, so when you went yeah. there in the first time you went to Wuhan there was no fear at all on the streets there were no travel restrictions at all right you just went in and, went and came out yeah and I, I mean I basically going about their lives normally I basically hopped on a plane and I got there I was wearing an N95 mask because all of you were so concerned and say you wear a mask all the time. I actually felt self-conscious at some points wearing the mask because no one else was wearing a mask. And everyone I talked to, from the DD drivers to the people who were selling noodles in the market, in the, the stalls right outside the Huanan Seafood Market, they were, number one, they were not wearing masks. And number two, they said that the doctors were exaggerating how serious the situation is, which is why they have been arrested by the police. If you remember, and now his very famous Dr. Li Wenliang, who died, he was one of these eight doctors who got censured by the authorities for raising the alarm. So clearly at the time, everyone thought that these people are just maybe spreading false information or trying to spread public fear. And so I would say there was a very casual attitude to it. And it was only after I got back from Wuhan that we were back in Beijing that we started to realize how serious it was. And I remember on January 20th, we had lunch here with the general manager of SQ Greater China. And we were just chatting about this and how this could be a localized problem. Maybe it's in China only. And little would we know that just weeks later, how serious this would become. And you went back after the lockdown was lifted. When was that? So I arrived the day before the lockdown was lifted. This was to cover the reopening of the city. So I think firstly what, to... What day was that? This mm. was April. So the lockdown was lifted on April 8th. So I got there on April 7th. So Wuhan was locked down for yeah. nearly 80 days, I understand. Yes, 76 days basically. Right. But I feel like there's a bit of misconception here. People felt that because the city is on lockdown, it means that no one can get in or out, which was not completely true. Actually, you still could get in. It's just that there was no way out for you after that. Okay. So trains were so still going into Wuhan, yeah. When you got to Wuhan the second time, were there any travel restrictions getting in? Any difficulty? Uh, technically, you can go into Wuhan. 
it's okay. I uh, just have to fill up a bunch of forms and go through some screenings, which sounds fairly simple and straightforward until when you're actually going through it. And then you realize like when I got into Beijing West Station, firstly, Beijing West Railway Station, for those who don't really know, is basically the busiest railway station in all of Beijing. And by that, I mean, it's just insane. It is massive. It's always heaving with people and you sort of have to elbow your way through to even be able to get onto the train platform. This time on April 7, when I got to Beijing West Station, it was empty barely anyone around. So again, as what has become very normal in places across China, you had to have your temperature taken, you had to show them on your health code that you were green, meaning that you are healthy. So I got through passport check. When I went through ticketing check, again, I had to show a health code, again, I had to have my temperature taken. And then when I got on the train, because they knew this was around the time where there were all these imported cases that were coming into China, and they were now a bit suspicious of foreigners. When I got on the train, a member of staff actually specially came up to me and asked, are you the person from Singapore? And I said, yes, why? Oh, can I check your passport? And can I check your health code? And then she shoves a thermometer into my face to take my temperature as well. And I thought, oh, okay, how nice. Why do I get this special treatment? Later on, I realized what was going on because they were trying to keep an eye on me to make sure that this foreigner doesn't move around too much and maybe spread disease. And when I arrived in Wuhan station, again, the same lady comes up to me and says, hi, this is Wuhan, stop. You have to get off here. Let me walk you off the train. I was like, oh, okay, that's very nice of you. Come, I'll help you with your bag. And then she leads me to this man who was waiting on the platform. It says, okay, I have this person from Singapore. Here is her passport. And I was like, okay, what is going on? And then, and so we get ushered towards the special lift and we get taken to a, the basement level down and get pushed towards this area where everyone suddenly, you see, is in full body protective gear. All these white suits with goggles and gloves and boot covers and all of it. It's quite an intimidating sight, I have to say. Uh, Did you have I mean, free movement in Wuhan? Or that, you, there was very specific places you were allowed to go to? There were no restrictions in Wuhan. I could go and talk to whomever I want to. I could interview anyone I wanted to on the streets as well. But when we got there, it just happened that the Foreign Affairs Bureau of Hubei and Wuhan had organised trips to places that we otherwise would not have gotten access to, which were places like the railway station to see the first train that was leaving Wuhan on April 8th, the inside of a toll booth, the highway toll, and as well as what was promised to be the transit area of the airport to see the first flight out. And also, our readers would have read the Jininhan Hospital, which was ground zero mm. of the entire outbreak. So two of these day trips I went on because it would have been impossible to get access otherwise. If not, other than that, I was on my own and anyone I wanted to talk to, I could talk to. Did you go back to the market? I did. But the market is, as you would have seen, is under complete lockdown. They've, it's not just sealed off with security tape now. They've basically built up metal barricades around. They've put netting over these metal barricades so you can't even zoom in and take a picture. And around these metal barricades, they've put another layer of cordon. And at the main junction where the market is, you've got at least two police cars that are just keeping constant watch. Okay, so yeah. that was getting into Wuhan and visiting it. Clearly, it was very much different from when it was in January. What was mm. leaving like? Was it the same kind of you know, barriers wow. you had to cross? Throughout yeah, this, how many times did they test you at all? Yes, so I got tested twice in Wuhan. So it is a prerequisite to be tested before you can leave Wuhan. 
And first, you have to apply to leave Wuhan. Well, simply because、uh, I'm coming back to Beijing.、And、Beijing is just far stricter because it is the capital city, and they have to just be stricter because you can't have an outbreak in the capital. It's just something that the Chinese government will be very sensitive about. So I had to apply to come back. My local area committee had to approve it. Number one, and then after that, I had to be put on a ballot for a train ticket because there are only specific trains that are allowed to take people from Wuhan back to Beijing. And this was one train a day or two trains on some days, and only one thousand people would be allowed to leave Wuhan for Beijing every day. And so it was a lot of anxiety, a lot of waiting, and also I had to go get nuclear acid tested. So the first day I went, I was told that oh, you can't come in without an appointment. You have to make an appointment. So, okay, fine. So next day I went back to the same hospital again and did all of it. It was a lot of bureaucracy. Which test is this? Is this the blood test type of test or the this, one where they swab your nose? This is the one where they swab you. But I was very lucky in that they did a throat swab、oh, both、right. times. All they do is that you go into a room, and this man comes to you with a giant ice cream stick-looking thing and asks you to go ah, and then they stick these very long cotton buds down your throat and swab around, which makes you feel like you want to throw up and gag and cough all at the same time, and it's just a horrible feeling. So I did it the first time, and then they said, oh, the results are going to take four days, and I thought, no, four days? I can't wait four days for this. I was told that the results would be ready in twenty-four hours, and so I called Don, who says that. Maybe you should try and see if there are other ways around it. And so someone else, a contact of mine, said that why don't you try this other hospital where they would be able to do the test for you quite quickly. And so I did, and they offered to do an antibody test for me at the same time, which I agreed to because ever since I visited the Huanan Market in January and I went back to Singapore, and all this started blowing up. And I've always suspected whether could it have been possible that I could have gotten COVID at some point, or and, and just because and not notice it or have been asymptomatic. And so I was just. Very, very, very curious about it, and I was like, "Yes, I'm going to get antibody tested as well. And if the antibody test comes back positive, then this is going to be a difficult conversation to have." So fortunately, it came back negative for both antibodies, and my nuclear acid test came back negative as well. Now, if you like the Ask ST at NLB podcast, please subscribe to the Straits Times for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Give us a rating too. This series is brought to you by the National Library Board. And now back to our episode. Did you have to pay for any of these tests? Yes, we had to pay for this test. Is it only for foreigners or? Do the Chinese nationals have to pay as well? Well, initially the Chinese nationals did have to pay for the test as well. It wasn't very expensive. It was between two hundred to four hundred yuan, depending on which hospital or clinic you went to. So that would be about between forty to eighty Singapore dollars. But now, as of this week, because they did have a resurgence of cluster of cases in that showed up in Wuhan last week, and now the city government has ordered for all eleven million citizens to be tested, and the government has said that. Testing will be free. Liz, you mentioned、uh, several times actually this health code that they checked on the train.、Uh, this green health code. What is that, and how do you get that?、Mm. So, a health code is basically an applet on either Alipay or WeChat, which are apps that you have to download in China because WeChat is this messaging app. Alipay is free to pay. So, they are applets that are developed by the local government. So, every province has their own. So, because I live in Beijing, I have the Beijing Health Code, where you basically put in your details and scan of your passport. 
And so what it does is that it tracks by location data where you've been and based on that gives you a colour whether it's green, it's orange, or some call it yellow or is it red. So green means that you're kosher, you're, you're fine, you can go anywhere. Yellow means that you could possibly have been in contact with someone who is a suspected case or you yourself are a suspected case and red means like no, no, you have to be under quarantine somewhere. So for example, when I came back from Wuhan, my health code actually was orange and it had a line there that says under home observation which meant that if I had been able to get off my door which already had a sensor on it but had I been able to get out and wanted to go to a mall if I had shown them an orange health code the police would have been called and then I, I would be taken back to my home or taken to centralized quarantine. This health code applet is based on GPS location or cell towers something quite specific to location right not something like trace together in Singapore where they are using your proximity to other users of the app well, I, I don't know the exact specifics of how it works. I think there is some of that trace together elements involved as well, but also it uses cell data and location data. But again, this is also not the only app that the Chinese government has. They have another one that is uh, centralised throughout China, which is developed by the State Council, which is China's cabinet. And this one uses cell tower data. So again, you scan a QR code before you go into a place. So you key in your mobile phone number and then it generates a code based on the location that you've been for the last two weeks to show whether, again, you have been to places that are high risk or medium risk or you are safe to be allowed into establishments. Okay, and you can see your own colour at any time, right? Yes, you, can, you can. Fire up the app and have a look at your own colour. Yes, for a while it, I actually became a little bit obsessed with it, especially in the early days because I think as is with the problem when you have so much data or such a large system that has so many people in it, sometimes there are slight glitches here and there. I, I wrote about this for the blog on ST but there were days where it would suddenly just turn orange out of nowhere and so I suddenly just became obsessed with this thing for about I think better part of a month where every morning when I wake up I would check that app first and this is the same app that also would show whether or not I could get a train ticket out of Wuhan so I was completely obsessed. Are these apps mandatory? Must everybody install them? There isn't a law that says it's mandatory it's just like e-payments you can't do anything if you don't have them is it exactly you can't do anything if you don't have them exactly exactly and just to go back a bit because when i got to wuhan clearly a lot of the older people they aren't very into this sort of like qr code scanning e-payment thing and they may have older phone models which when you scan something your 4g may not be working very well you may even be on 3g and they said it actually gave them a lot of anxiety and just a lot of frustration that it made them even if they had opportunity to leave their homes it made them not really want to leave their homes like for instance you can't get on a bus without scanning a qr code so can you imagine if you're, you're queuing to get in on a bus first they have someone to come down to take your temperature and then you have to scan the qr code to show that a you are clean and b is for contact tracing purposes and if your phone doesn't work the bus is on a schedule it just makes you feel very anxious that you're holding up this entire vehicle for people you're holding up all the people behind you it's right. very difficult so I, I get a sense that tech is playing quite a large part in the reopening but what else is there when we look at China, we look yes. at a country that is sort of experiencing yes. the phases of this COVID pandemic a little bit ahead of that everybody is, else. 
That is true. Tech is a very big part of it, but I think one thing we cannot forget that China really does have heads and shoulders above a lot of other countries. I think it's two things. One is that China really does have a lot of boots on the ground. I mean, literally, you have 1.4 billion people in this country, and you have uh, a lot of people who either work as community volunteers or they are employees of the city government, and you just have so many boots on the ground to be able to enforce a lockdown or even to be able to enforce social distancing rules. And I think that has been quite key in why it has been so successful in doing all of this in in a way in controlling the virus. Equivalent of this for Singapore is that imagine every housing estate. Firstly, it is closed off, and then you have a team of about ten to fifteen people at every housing estate who to manage the comings and goings of the residents there, and then supported by tech as well. So that is that is one thing. Estate. You mean one HDB block might have ten people? I wouldn't say one HDB block, but a cluster of HDB block. You know how HDBs are in clusters. Yeah. yeah. So like one cluster would probably have about ten people. And don't forget uh, why they've been very successful at keeping people indoors is because online shopping has just been such a huge thing in China. It's so successful. They have this entire logistics chain that is almost been perfected. And so when you have this. Whole network of couriers who can bring things to you—it really does help keep people at home. It makes them not feel like they want to go out. And the other thing that China is very, very good at is just mobilizing people. This is a society that is really quite top-down. They do look to the government for a lot of guidance. They look to the government for directions in a lot of ways. And so, whenever the central government says that, okay, we are going to do this, everyone falls in line. Says, yes, let's do it. So, Liz, I, I get a sense of those. Online shopping is、uh, being used more, but in your sense, has some parts of the culture changed for good? Has there been things that people used to do that seems like it has been lost forever? I cannot say for sure now. Certainly, things are not exactly the way they used to be. But I am hopeful that things will soon get back to the way they are. I mean, already we are seeing free travel, intercity travel, and that is already coming back. So yeah, I am hopeful, and I think that for people in Singapore, that it is very important to see that there can be a future. Okay, and the the measures do seem to be working. What is the、uh, coronavirus situation in China like? Right. So, like today, which is May nineteen, health authorities have reported six new confirmed cases and also seventeen new asymptomatic cases.、Uh, I'm not going to go into why these tallies are kept separately. So basically, we are seeing twenty three new cases,、uh, yeah. and this is pretty much under control. There are that、uh, most of the country basically is completely clear. These new cases are linked to one in Wuhan, which new cluster was discovered last week, and then Jilin. Where because of the overflow that came from Heilongjiang, that was from imported cases from the Russian border. So these are all traceable cases. Not like they are free flowing instances in the community. So I would say that yeah, I think China has been fairly successful in this. Right. I think now is a good time for us to take some of the questions that our readers have sent in. We have a few questions. I'm going to take the first one from、uh, Mr. Yung Keng Kai. He wants to know what the situation like is like in China in the other provinces, not Wuhan, not Beijing. What is it like in the rest of the country? Okay, firstly, thank you for your question, Mr. Yeo. Well, in the rest of the country, life is almost as per normal.、Uh, we are seeing pictures from Guangzhou, from Shanghai, where people are actually not wearing their masks. And it's not that it's against the law; it is perfectly legal to not wear a mask if you're outdoors in certain situations already. And so, people are not wearing masks. They are going back to restaurants. They are out shopping. We're seeing very, very importantly, schools are reopening. 
more schools are going to reopen in June and I think that is a very key sign because schools are something that are very hard to control because you've got so many students and children just intermingling with each other you've got these kids that are also going to get on public transport so the fact that you can reopen schools with confidence I think it's a very clear sign that things are getting back to normal but one very important thing also is that Disneyland has reopened wow yeah yeah, yeah. but of course this is a theme park still with virus control measures in place uh, people are advised to wear masks when going in they are reducing the crowd and unfortunately you can't meet and greet Mickey or any of the princesses and they have cancelled parades and fireworks because they feel that that will encourage crowds together which they are still trying to enforce that sort of social distancing thing yeah. so life is pretty much back to normal except for small pockets uh, here and there so to Mr Jung's question the numbers across the board in all provinces are down Yes, basically most provinces have reported zero new infections for weeks and weeks and weeks now. It's just in Wuhan and in Jilin that there are still cases that are popping up here and there. Right. Now for our second reader question, it's from uh, Madam Go Pogik. She actually has a multi-part question. What the new normal in Wuhan is like now, I think we've spoken about that. Her third part, I think, is particularly interesting. She wants to know what the motivation is for the locals to self-regulate. So I guess... In part, it's motivated by, in Singapore, we are seeing some resistance to some of the rules. We've had several people be mm. taken to court because mm. they either refuse to wear a mask or they refuse to stay home, various things. And in mm. like places in the US, you see actual protests against stay home orders. Mm. In China, do you have any of that? Or are people generally you know, life following yeah. the government orders? And if they are, why do you think they're so obedient uh. for the lack of a better word? Well, I think there are people who did have trouble. This is, I mean, I'm not trying to paint a picture where China, everybody has fallen. I mean, generally, most of the people did. But I don't know if you remember the stories that were coming out in February and in March when controls were much tighter. You had roadblocks on major highways and travel between provinces were prevented. And there were people who did quite horrible things. Like literally someone killed one of these guards from preventing him from going out and his housing estate. And another one, and bearing in mind that this was still when the weather was fairly cold, like a woman felt like she had been cooped at home for so long that she just went mad and decided to strip naked and run out of her gates, defying anyone to try and stop her. So there were instances like this. In fact, the case I mentioned earlier, that was not the only instance where there were the local police who were getting killed. I think there were a few incidents where they were also quite badly hurt by people who just wanted to get out, who just wanted to move around. So please don't get the impression that everything was hunky-dory here. I mean, it was a difficult period. This sort of lockdown was a very difficult period for the Chinese as well. I mean, it's as hard for them as it is for people of Singapore. But I think there was also a motivation that they just felt like if we get through this together, if we do it properly, then things will get better. Right. Yeah. Liz, I, think I don't know a... if that answers your question. <laughs> to Madam Go, I hope it does. But I think yeah, everybody has a part to play. I think that's a good place to end this. Thank you very much for your time, Liz. And do take care there in Beijing. I will. Thank you, Jeremy. And thank you, listeners, for your questions. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye, Liz. Well, that's a wrap. And we'd like to thank our readers for sending in their questions. This series is brought to you by the National Library Board. Follow The Straits Times on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcast apps to catch the next episode of Ask ST at NLB. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. 
find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.